and sometimes why. Why? You're listening to And Sometimes Why, twice-monthly, long-form conversation podcast hosted by singer-songwriter, producer, and pseudo-intellectual Rob Zabo. Hey, folks. Welcome to And Sometimes Why. I'm your host, Rob Zabo, and I'm uh, recording this in my car. I'll explain why a little later, but uh, for the time being, if you hear anything different, for those regular listeners, if it sounds different to you, if you can hear cars driving by, if you can hear the TTC driving by, it's because I'm on uh, McCall Street, downtown Toronto, in my car. The car is covered in snow, so people walking by can't really see me inside. But uh, I'm here. It's minus nine. I'm comfy. I'm all wrapped up in my winter gear, and you can probably hear that rustling and hear the uh, material as I turn my head. I've got one of those Russian-style hats with the furry stuff that goes all around. You pull the ear flaps over your head, the uh, chin strap, the whole deal. So why am I doing this? It's because I'm improvising. Kat, my partner, who you've heard me talk about consistently over the course of this podcast, we share a small space and she's got calls today. And I had to get creative because I left this monologue to the last minute. I kind of like it. It's cozy in here. Forgive me if I pause every once in a while here. It's, I don't have my uh, my notes in front of me. I, it's it's different. I'm having to improvise. We're all having to improvise um, a year into this lockdown. It's crazy. I bought this little recorder when I started this podcast, this mobile recording device. And my idea was I'd be able to record guests, go to their homes, go to their spaces and record us having these conversations. But it turns out that's not in the cards for the next long while, it seems. But I'm putting it to use today. Um, how you guys doing? How are you guys doing getting creative over the lockdown? Oh, I haven't said the guest today on the show is David McPherson. He's been published in thousands of different media. He's a journalist. He's just published a book about the Horseshoe Tavern, I guess, a few years ago. We've talked a lot about that. And he's got a new book coming out about Massey Hall, the iconic downtown Toronto music venue. So the Horseshoe Tavern, I've played there many times, and that was super interesting to me to dig into that and to hear a little more about the history than I had any idea about. So before we get into that, I wanted to get back to how are you guys doing? How are you guys doing a year deep into the lockdown, getting creative and improvising? That's on my mind today, obviously, because I'm in my car doing this thing. I don't know. I've liked that aspect of it. I've liked having to get creative and, and break out of my habits. I'm one of these guys that, I don't know, I'm a creature of habit in a lot of ways. I think we all are in different ways. But the lockdown has forced me to break out of some of those habits. I got to thank my partner, Kat, who, again, I, I talk about all the time on this. She's great at coming up with super creative ways of just having fun when uh, it doesn't seem like there's many options. We've been skating. My savior for my mental health over the lockdown in the last few months has been skating. The city of Toronto's got it set up so you can go and do a distance skate. You have to wear masks. You know, they ask you all the questions when you're checking in. But it's been great. It's been a godsend. I, I forgot how much I love skating. It's a combination of those nostalgic things that you get as you get older. I haven't skated for years, really. We 
Kat and I skate maybe once a year on a regular year, but over the pandemic, we're going three, four times a week. You know, minus 10 degrees, we're out on the rink. I never would have done that pre-pandemic. I'd be like, no, sorry, uh, maybe, you know, when it gets closer to zero. It's funny how uh, your perspective changes. Another creative thing we've been doing, we've been mixing up the food choices. We made a lasagna over the weekend on Valentine's Day weekend. We made this pesto lasagna. You can tell I'm jumping all over the place. Creativity, nonlinear thinking. That's where I'm at. ADHD, maybe. So here's to creativity over the pandemic. Enjoying the podcast? Make sure to subscribe in the app you're using to get new episodes twice a month. Want to help spread the word? Leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. More reviews and ratings means the algorithm shows and sometimes why to more people. If you listen on Spotify, you can share directly to your Instagram and Facebook stories. It all helps get the word out. But the very best thing you can do is tell a friend. So let's dig into this conversation. Let me put my gloves on. Hands are getting cold. Like I said, minus nine. This guy walking by looking at me in my car, wondering if I'm uh, doing okay. Yes, David McPherson is our guest, is my guest on the show today. Like I said earlier, he's a writer. He's an author. We talk about his book about the Horseshoe Tavern, his upcoming book about Massey Hall. So here is my conversation with the writer, the journalist, David McPherson. All this technology is supposed to make our lives easier. But I found like even earlier, I went and I was helping my dad. Uh, my sister thought it would be a neat idea to give him. Uh, he's 80. Uh-huh. Uh, he loves music. And uh, for like a early Valentine's Day, uh, uh-huh. she, she gave him tickets to the Ann Arbor Folk Festival. that's coming up uh, this weekend. Oh, nice. You know, so it's all virtual. Uh-huh. So, you know, it's one of those processes that, you know, you you got like a link that you had to then, you know, create an account with this company that was hosting the concert. <laughs> and he's having and, to do it? Yeah, he had to do it. I mean, he's pretty good with that stuff. But I ended up, right. I, I was over there today and uh, I figured, you know, I knew the way it was. He was getting frustrated and it was one of those simple things. So is that where you got your love of music from your dad? A little bit. Yeah, for sure. Probably on my own. Uh, high school was really through a few friends who, you know, started turning me on to classic rock and other music, you know, going to my first concert, it was kind of like, that was kind of the big discovery. What was the first concert? Uh, the Who, actually. <laughs> in, uh, in Where grade, was that? In grade 10 at uh, the old CNE Stadium. Nice. Those first concerts make such a big impression, at least my first one, like, I can remember so much about it. Oh, yeah. And I was lucky that first summer. I mean, I saw The Who and The Stones <laughs> as the first two, you know, big shows, big rock shows. So hard to top that. So I was like, you know, I was hooked. What year was that again? Uh, 89. So how's the Massey Hall book you're writing? Pretty good. I'm, I'm finally into, you know, later editing stages. I actually just got the manuscript back today from my editor again. We've been working with the folks at Massey Hall. They've been amazing. Uh, and so they actually reviewed this draft manuscript and they had some comments so that's oh, kinda, interesting yeah so that's where huh. I'm, I'm at now and just uh, for listeners massey hall is a historic music hall downtown toronto how old is it yeah 1894 it opened so yeah it's uh, coming on 100 and you know 24 years i guess what yeah. a cool project yeah there i mean how do you even approach a project like that because there's so much history 
It's like, where do you even start? It's a tough one. I mean, before this uh, book, I, I did a book. My first book was on the Horseshoe Tavern, and that had, you know, 70 years of history, which was a lot. But this is double that. And yeah, when you're dealing with any history, it is difficult. You know, what do you decide to focus on? What do you keep in? What do you leave out? And a lot of it comes down to, I think it helps to have a bit of a, a structure and outline. And that's where the editor is really really helped me kind of focus that in as well. You know, my ADHD, I'm kind of all over the place sometimes. And as a writer, you know, just kind of jump from one thing to another. But definitely when you're dealing with a project like this with so much history, you, you kind of need that outline. And at the end of the day, my editor suggested and the publisher to kind of do it more chronologically. So once you get kind of that, like, you know, the opening years and how it came about and then the 1920s or, you know, different decades, they give you an outline. Uh, well, I mean, that's kind of what I created. But I then, see. as I'm saying, working with them, you know, they suggest, well, maybe we should divide the book chronologically rather than picking different themes, because that's how I had started it, you know, doing something on all the folk artists that had played there as an example, or mm-hmm. by genre, or by different decades. But it made more sense. And it, that helped me kind of organize and, and focus as well. But you, you, yeah. gotta, you realize as a writer, you're always going to leave stuff out. And there's always going to be people, oh, why didn't you include that? I mean, those are just the decisions you have to make. And especially as you go through the editing process like this, I mean, I, I forget who who said it, but that idea of you, you have to learn to kill your babies. It's like an awful expression. But it, it basically that idea, I mean, as writers, you know, I'm sure you as a songwriter, there's sometimes certain lines or certain things uh, or stories you really like, but at the end of the day, it may be for length, it may be it's too repetitive or too much information for that particular project, and you, you got to let those go, and that, that's just the way it is. You have to be ruthless, eh? Yeah, you got to be ruthless. That's ru- the way I look at it. Yeah, yeah you can't be you gotta, precious. No. Because uh, I heard filmmakers talking about it in terms of not falling in love with the footage. Mm-hmm. Right. You have to be able to just kill it off, like you said earlier. Yeah, Yeah, that's something you you talked about being a songwriter. So myself, this is something I always marvel at about people who write full books. Mm -hmm. So I think about you writing about Massey Hall or The Horseshoe. And I think about writing a song. You talked about ADHD, right? With a song, it's a little bit like a sprint, right? And then you can let it go and go on to the next thing. You know, there's a squirrel, whatever it is. Whereas with a book, you have to stay focused. So Mm -hmm. do you have any kind of, uh, I don't know, give us some insight into your routine or your maybe some hacks you have to like keep (laughs) yourself focused on this big task? I do procrastinate a lot. Uh, I'm totally like that. Writers uh, need deadlines, right? And I think Uh so so that's a big help for sure. Uh, So again, you're going back to the publisher or editor. I've always said that's one place where I'm really lucky just from that perspective of being able to, like you said, finish a project, finish the book, because you get all these deadlines you have to beat along the way and you're accountable. And that's oh, is that the, how it works? They give you sort of different uh, goalposts? Yeah. Not just you have to be done here. You have to be done the outline and then yeah. the next thing, whatever you call it. Yeah. So so that's really helpful for me because, you know, I've never been a good planner that way. Right. Um, and that helps meet those goals. And so, you know, you're working on something together, you know, versus I know other people who, you know, say I've always wanted to write a novel or I've always wanted to write a book. That's one reason they don't do it, right? They may pick it up, work on it a bit, put it aside, because as the cliche says, life gets in the way, you know, whether it's their job or anything else they're doing. And for me, while I'm writing these books, I'm, I'm still doing lots of other work, uh, trying to bring in some income, other feature stories for various publications. 
I think the key is, like I said, having those deadlines really helps. And then, you know, also for me, it's taking a break when I need it, getting lots of exercise. Uh, that helps me kind of come right. back, come back and stay focused. Uh, you don't want to burn out like where you're deep in a, in a rabbit hole and then, no. you, you know, you get overwhelmed or something. Yeah. That's what happens to me. Mm-hmm. So this horseshoe book you wrote, I love this book. It totally sent me down. I'm talking about rabbit holes. Yeah. So many different, you know, I'd pick up on something that you said or look at one of those old photos and go, oh my, I didn't realize the horseshoe had windows back in the day. And then the bit about Stompin' Tom and all the shows he played there. And I imagine you've seen your fair share of shows at the horseshoe. I was lucky. I came to discover the horseshoe a bit later than, you know, many others, uh, as you know, uh, I grew up in Kitchener Waterloo, uh, like yourself, I believe. And, you know, oh, yeah. until I, I moved off to university, I mean, I never would go down to Toronto to see shows at a club. Obviously, my first big shows, as I mentioned, was in high school when I went down and saw some of the bigger shows. But I, I the horseshoe, I really didn't discover until I moved to Toronto after I did my master's in journalism and got my first job uh, in the city around the in the late 90s. So, and but, so you're already early 20s by then something like that yeah so do you remember your first show what your impression of the venue was oh yeah for sure i mean the first show actually was uh, a band uh, from texas called the old 97s that was your first show so is that rhett miller is he the lead yeah rhett Rhett miller and uh i'd never heard of the band and it was one of those examples where i'd heard of the horseshoe i'd wanted to go you know i just hadn't been in the city too long and uh, I saw an ad in Now Magazine that, you know, said old 97s, cow punk, or, you know, had some right. description. And I thought, oh, this sounds interesting. I got to go check this out. And, and uh-huh. you know, since I've I've interviewed Rhett and uh, a couple other members of the band and seen them many, many times. They're one of my favorites. And I think that was part of it, that places like the Horseshoe are so important, not just to, you know, artist careers uh, like yourself, but uh, for the audience uh, as a way to discover uh, oh, yeah. There's and, and- nothing like seeing a show at a venue like the Horseshoe. Like to me, in terms of sound and sight lines, you know, if you get people who are ready to hear music in a venue like that, it doesn't get better because it's just got that magical. I don't even know what it is, because if you see it in the light of day, if you were to walk, you tell someone the legendary Horseshoe, yeah. 70 years, <laughs> Rolling Stones, yeah. all the, you know, the police, all these people have played there, the Carter family, and then walk them in at noon on a Tuesday. There's nothing here. It's a dirty old bar. There's nothing to it. It's low ceilings. doesn't look like anything. But you walk them in and there's 400 people gnawing their arms off, hanging from the rafters (laughs) during an old 97 show or drive-by truckers or whatever it is. And you just go, it's magic. That's something I think I even mentioned in in the book is the idea. It's it really is a dive in many ways, as you you described it, right? It's, but I think it's a beautiful dive, and that's part of it. That you go in there, and people talk about you know the history that I tried to capture, but even the artists you would talk to, that they would say about playing there, and oh, if those walls could talk, and it's that idea as an artist, as a fan going in there and hearing a show, you feel that you feel the uh, gravitas and the weight of that history. When you get into a, a one of those amazing shows where, you know, everything's right, great band, you know, the sound, you know, sight lines. I mean, that's part I loved about it. You could get right up in front of the stage, right? I mean, one of my favorite spots to always watch used to be kind of right at the side of the stage. Uh, on the left side? On the left side, yeah. That's, so you're standing right in front of the speakers, right? Yeah. So your left <laughs> ear is totally fried yeah. by the end of the night. Yeah, well, I, I guess I, I figured a long time ago, I've seen so many shows that, you know, I've damaged my hearing for good, even though my, my kids will say, you know, 
you, you really should uh, stop listening to the music so loud. But I, I figure that's the only only way to hear it. It's worth it in the end. Yeah, yeah. I've seen so many shows there that, that were magic. And I got caught up in, in so many of the details. That's why I hesitated there. I'm just like, there's so many things I want to talk about. Yeah. For instance, it opened in 1947, right? Mm-hmm. It was one of the first places in Toronto where you could order liquor, Yeah, which to me is crazy. I was thinking, was it really that uncommon for a place to serve liquor? I yeah. guess it's just post-pro... When did Prohibition happen? Prohibition was uh, a little bit earlier, but... I thought uh, so. It's really talking about hard liquor, right? I mean, that's the whole idea. Yeah, they, bars were serving beer, I think. But hard liquor, for some reason, that it took longer. And especially, oh, that was the distinction. That's okay. the distinction. And it was like a new liquor license that had to be granted for these taverns or places to sell liquor. And, and again, it's just one more example of how it's so hard to believe that Toronto was so, I wouldn't say backward, but it, it, it wasn't that long ago, right? I mean, you think about it in the West End of Toronto, there is still a dry. Yeah, isn't that right? that's what freaked me out about it too? And you, the, in your book, you write about how the clergy, <laughs> there was a couple churches in here, yeah. that, and you know the pastors were object, you know they were trying to block the license because they yeah. didn't want people drunk on Queen Street. Just think yeah. of that; uh, it's, it seems unimaginable. Yeah, it was just a very staid, uh, conservative city for a, for a long time, right? And so th- that's why this was kind of a big deal when it opened because it did bring in you know a different crowd and clientele, and, and that's why. <laughs> As you said, uh, the clergy and some of these people were worried because you figure you get people together and drinking, yeah, you know. Drinking and dancing, They're, listening yeah. to music. Who knows what's going to yeah, happen after that? who knows what's going to happen? But, uh, <laughs> so what do you think the magic of the room is itself? Because in my experience as a performer, for instance, did you ever go to the circus room in Kitchener in its heyday in the late 90s? Yeah, I recall going a couple times. But The reason I bring up the circus room is because it was another one of those places that I like. And obviously, it's not an icon like the horseshoe. It's in a smaller city and all that. But the reason I bring it up is because I played there for years and years. And it was one of those rooms that if you walk someone in, like I was saying about the shoe, you wouldn't think anything of it. That was a smaller room. Shoes about 400, something like that capacity. Circus room was like 75, 100 people. But if you get 75 people in this place on a Wednesday night, it had just that right equation of the size of the room, the sight lines, it sounded good enough. And people were kind of on top of each other in just the right way that it felt like a party. And so... It had that magic. And mm-hmm. the shoes got the same kind of thing. You can't really describe it. Did you ever put your finger on it? Or did you talk to somebody who could describe why it worked? Yes and no, I guess. Uh, many of the artists I talked to, uh, for sure, uh, for them, why it worked, partly it was because of, like you said, that magic was just ingrained in the walls and, and the history of all the legends and all the people that had played there before them. And it's similar you know, just on a grander scale, you know, with the book on Massey Hall that I'm writing now and all the hundreds of artists I've interviewed for this project, that uh, it's the same idea that uh, it's hard not to feel that history and feel when you're up on that stage or you're in that room, you think, oh, wow, in the horseshoe case, the Rolling Stones played here. I mean, you know, the Gord Downey of the hip was up there. Oh, uh, yeah. Stomping Tom Connors. This was his, uh, you know, watering hole. And, and he, 
still holds the record at the horseshoe for most consecutive nights played for, you know, like 25 in a row. And is that what it was? Yeah. Oh, that's so, fantastic. So you, you hear and you, you know, think, food you fighters, think, the police, yeah, all of it. It's incredible. And I think that's part of the magic right there is that even though you walk in there, middle of the day, you see all these uh, people just drinking at the front bar you know, maybe shooting some pool, you know, the back bar where the music and the magic happens is dark. You don't get that feeling, but it it really is, I think, like you said, the combination of all those ingredients, once they're put together, you know, the right band, the right audience at the right time on a given night. And that's when the magic happens. And I think, especially right now, as we've been living through this pandemic, you know, over a year now, since I've gone to a live concert and I know I'm missing it tremendously, And I've talked to so many artists throughout it. And, you know, the virtual concerts have been, you know, a good substitute. But what everyone says, I mean, what you can't emulate in a virtual show, no matter how good the technology is and any other bells and whistles you can add, like, you know, having people, you know, chat in real time or whatever it is. I mean, the magic of a live music experience is feeling the emotions, the atmosphere and everything else in that room. Uh, when you were there, right, with all those people, seeing the way they they react to the band, like you said, seeing them dance, seeing them singing along to the words, like, those are the type of moments that give you chills, right, as an audience member uh, that you don't get sitting in, uh, you know, your living room at home watching a show on uh, your laptop or uh, simulcast uh, or Chromecast to your TV. There's nothing like being in the room. No. As an audience member, as a you know, as a performer, you just can't, there's no comparison. I couldn't agree more. Can you think of some of your, you you talked about getting chills. I'm thinking of some of my favorite shows that I've ever seen live. And almost all of them are in about the same size room as the horseshoe. They're, they're a bigger band in a room that's about four or 500. For me, my favorite show that I ever saw was Queens of the Stone Age Mm. when they had Dave Grohl on drums and they played Lee's. So same promoters as, as uh, the shoe. Right. And so that was 92. No, sorry. 2002. Maybe it was for songs for the deaf. It was just like the raw power of this band that was soon to be playing stadiums in this 400, 500 seat room. And it was just, you know, one of the, like in the Max L commercial where the guy's on the couch and his hair is being blown back. It was just (laughs) like everybody in the room was just jaw on the floor. Do you have a memory that comes to you that as far as like one of the best you've ever seen? Yeah, there's so many, uh, in terms of the horseshoe, probably, uh, the Drive-By Truckers, the band you mentioned earlier. Uh, uh-huh. Yeah, that was a pretty memorable show. What year would have that been, roughly? Right after the, uh, I think it was around 99, 2000, early 2000s for sure. And uh, Jason Isbell was still in the band. Totally. And so they had three, basically three guitarists, like three like songwriters, and they were loud. And it was and they were lo- still going hard, and, too. And Everybody were, was oh, drinking. Oh, all yeah, of they, they were still going hard. I mean, that was uh, back in my drinking days. And uh, <laughs> I I did go down, uh, you know, stairs afterwards and recall, you know, having a few drinks with them. Uh, oh, you did? You, know. you went down to the dressing room? Yeah, yeah. But oh, they, that's great. Yeah, so that was pretty cool. But, I mean, just the show itself, I mean, you know, those were the days I don't think I can do <laughs> do, do it anymore. But, you know, how it was in these those clubs. Uh, yeah, you could go were, down and hang out with people. Yeah. I mean, no one was really going to yeah. stop you. I mean, sometimes they had security, but not really. I mean, yeah. same thing at least. At yeah. least people I was with went up and hung out with, uh, you know, my partner Kat got up 
photo with Dave Grohl. Yeah, yeah. He's walked over. Hey, man, how's it going? Yeah. Yeah. Well, what's better than that, right? No. If they're, as long as they're not too highfalutin, most people who are cool people are just like, of course. That's it. You, you know, know, we're in it together. And But that show, I mean, they didn't go on until about 1130 at night, right? <laughs> oh, this is this yeah, drive-by truckers. That's one of those shows, right? And and then they played till about 2, 2.30, like long past last call. And I even remember them ending with, uh, in one of their encores, the, uh, what's that, People Who Died. Uh, you know, it was a great cover and definitely chills that night. Yeah, so many other shows over the years. But, you know, definitely during the 70th anniversary, there was some one of the most amazing shows. Like they did a lot of uh, shows to celebrate their 70th back in 2017 mm-hmm. and bringing a lot of artists back who, who had played there over the years. And it was you know, a real home for them. So a couple seeing 5440 one night, uh, Jim Cuddy band and definitely Matt Mays, uh, for me, that nice. was, a, that was another one. I mean, he just, uh, he, he's pre- a pretty incredible Canadian musician. I think, you know, again, is one I discovered at, uh, the, the, at, horse, the, shoe. at the shoe during uh, North by Northeast one year when I was covering it for uh, chart magazine. So I love that you had the Rio statics. You had Dave Bedini in there talking about the fall nationals where the Rios would play for a week or more. How long did they play? Sometimes almost two weeks at some points, wasn't it? Yeah. No, that's the thing. I think uh, Dave joked, like they tried to come close to... They tried to do the Stomp and Tom thing, but they didn't quite get there. I saw a few of those. I saw a few of those. They were so good at at that. I mean, still are. I saw them recently. I had him on the show and it was seeing a band like that, especially a band like the Rio Statics who play a different set every night. Mm -hmm. You know, you can see a whole different show. Yeah. So you talk to so many different people about their role in the shoe. And like, for instance, Dave Bookman, who used to do his new music nights. I remember playing a few of those. And for people who never saw one of those, it started out with more local bands, but they'd bring in bands from all over after a certain point. And it was a mix and you could walk in. And if you didn't like the band that was on, this is the quote from the book, there was always another one up in half an hour. This is a guy who was, you know, semi-legendary at the time in the Toronto music scene. And he was great. Anytime I ever played that show, you would think some people might think a guy like that with that kind of reputation, a real kind of, you know, personality Mm -hmm. might have a bit of an attitude, but he was always cool to everybody. And and I guess what I'm getting to is community. The idea that there's a community around this place from the bookers down to Teddy Fury, the bartender, you know, yeah. how long has he been there? Ah, that's a good question now. I mean, I think when I wrote the book, I think it was over 30 years. So Is, yeah. isn't that incredible that yeah. a bartender would bartend at a spot yeah. for 30 years? Yeah, yeah definitely. He, he doesn't I even mean, look it, that old, right? No, he's still no, got the quaff. Yeah, the most amazing thing too is that he doesn't drink. I mean, uh, you know, like myself, he gave it up a, a number of years back. And I mean, imagine that being a bartender, like, or working in a bar and, you know, every night. To, well, yeah, I, I can mean, see how uh, it might be an occupational hazard. So yeah. you may want to uh, protect yourself. But so what was keep, it for you? What made you, why'd you stop drinking? I just realized after, uh, you know, it took me a long time, but I, I did have a, a problem with alcohol and uh, it wasn't a good thing. It was uh, affecting all the other uh, aspects of my life. And uh, I knew that uh, just stopping and getting you know, the help I needed was the what was needed to uh, be a better husband, better father, and be healthier myself. That's the one thing with, uh, you know, those that are lucky that can just maybe, you know, have a glass of wine with dinner and uh, one or two drinks uh, here and there. They don't understand that what comes with an addict when you, you know, you can't stop, right? It, it's, you, you don't just want one drink. It, that one drink always leads to many more. And then, you know, as we know, alcohol is a, a drug that 
alters your mind and your mood and you never know where it's going to take you right uh, there was a lot of good times that's for sure <laughs> yeah yeah but, but uh, uh, a lot of downsides a lot of too. downside for sure too so yeah Sorry. so it's it's been uh, just over five years for now uh five years for oh, me good for and, you congrats yeah, thanks congrats. And, that takes a lot of courage you know to, yeah. to admit that it's not working and to do something about it no it was one of the best decisions i've ever made so and i'm, I'm happy i mean it's one of those i know it's something i'll live with for the rest of my life but you know one day at a time it's uh, gets easier uh, like I said, it's uh, I'm much happier for sure. Good and, for you. And I think Good I've been you. more productive too. Uh, I always wanted to write a book and, you know, here I am, I've got one published and, you know, another, you know, one on its way next fall. So. And uh, that happened after you quit. You don't think you would have done that while you were drinking. It was. I, I definitely think it, I don't know if I would have uh, been able to complete it or be as successful for sure. I mean, I think <laughs> that's kind of, you know, the irony of it all that as artists, often you think, oh, I need to you know, have the stimulant, right? Uh, Especially you think of the case of musicians that you think of all these great songs that are apparently were written when people were uh, high or, you know, smashed out of their gourd, whatever. And, uh, Uh and yeah, that may be true for, for some here and there, but the reality is you need that clarity and hundred uh, percent. That's definitely my experience. And in all the reading that I've done, and I've done a fair bit of reading about the process of creation and almost without exception, there are very, very few people who say it's better for them if they're out of their mind in some way. Almost mm-hmm. everyone seems to need clarity. Mm-hmm. So I think it's a myth. I think it's a pretty destructive myth too. Oh, definitely. And I think that's part of it. it it's like a lot of things, right? Uh, you talked about courage and for sure that is what it takes uh, to first admit you have a problem, then do something about it. But that's all part of the myth that, especially as you know, in the music industry, you know, yeah. a- alcohol is glamorized and the party lifestyle. And for myself, as someone who loved to go see live music and as a journalist and writer, I mean, you'd often go to these events and places where there was lots of uh, alcohol there. So it, and everyone else was doing it, right? So it's just like, oh, yeah, you know? And so yeah. you, you didn't think it was abnormal if you were going up to the bar at last call and ordering a, you know, a double whiskey sour. Yeah, I have a lot of friends who are, I mean, in your 20s, it's one thing, you know, your body's different. You have more uh, stamina in a lot of ways. Your recovery is quicker. But, you know, as you get into your 40s and 50s, it seems like almost without fail, people get to the point where they're like, even if they don't quit entirely, they they check their relationship with alcohol and they realize that, especially as musicians, this is my experience is, you know, if you're on tour, let's say you're 30, you know, take a month of touring every night you're in a different city, probably. And depending on the level that you're at, no matter, I, I guess it doesn't even matter what level you're at, no matter whether you're in a small club or in a big theater on a, in a stadium, the night that you're in that city, the people are coming to see you, it's a party night for them. Yeah. It can't be a party night for you every night. Yeah. That ends pretty quickly. It doesn't end well, right? So can we talk about you, your life as a writer? Sure. I'd love to talk more about the process and like, can you pinpoint when you started thinking of yourself as a writer? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, when I considered myself a writer, you know, maybe as early as high school, that's when I first really got interested in, in writing. In my final year of high school, I took a, the creative writing. It was called The Writer's Craft. That was one of my favorite courses. I ended up winning like a Region of Waterloo Award. Oh, great. Writing award for this piece of prose I had written about, you know, an abandoned baseball glove that was left in this barn. Uh, so I kind of adopted the voice of the baseball glove and 
talking about all the other items that were you know left there and that was kind of the first uh, i guess moment of well maybe this is something i could do you know it gave me that bit of confidence you know from there i went off to university i took english and i worked for the student newspaper and you know i guess for many years i didn't consider myself a writer to answer that question probably not till after I worked in the corporate uh, world, corporate communications in Toronto for about you know a dozen years, mm-hmm. and left to do my own writing business, uh, I'd, I'd say that's when I really started to identify as a writer more and call myself a writer, and and really feel you know when this all my income and everything is com- is coming from me writing, I figured yeah maybe now I've earned it. <laughs> and, uh, right when you're making a living, when you're I'm pro. making a living, I I can just call myself a writer. And same thing with the author. I now the fact that I've published a book, I can you know add that title for whatever it's worth, and I can believe yeah I'm I'm now an author. But you know as a writer. You know, reading was one of my favorite pastimes, and I'm still a voracious reader. I think that part of it, I always want. I, I read other writers and always kind of aspired in many ways to be a writer myself. Did you ever have a teacher or a mentor or someone who kind of gave you a little push in a direction that, that made a difference? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I, I was not a great student in the sense of, uh, you know, my ADHD, as I mentioned before, I, I was very disruptive in class, uh, you know, in my grade school years. So I think teachers, they liked my sense of humor. <laughs> They saw that I was, uh, you know, smart in many ways, but I wasn't the best uh, in terms of, you know, the model student that sat there and listened. But right, right. And uh, back then, they didn't even usually talk about it in terms of ADHD at the time. No, I don't well, remember hearing that. It was no. just like, shut up, well, <laughs> detention well, that, for you. You know, yeah. Well, that was it. You know, it got so bad at one point. You know, in grade five or six that they didn't want to disrupt the class anymore. And they just put like a playing card on my desk. And that meant I had to go down to the office, you know? So are you, you serious? Know. Oh yeah. So you know how the question was about uh, role models and teachers and people who were mentors. And I guess really for me going back to my last year in high school and that writer's craft class, that was probably the, the best mentor I had as a writer because uh, this teacher, Barb Carter, she really pushed all of us. She would say, you know, your assignment, you know, today is whatever. And, you know, you will accept it kind of thing. And <laughs> this is and, your mission. Yeah, this is your mission. But we, we did so many different uh, assignments and styles. And she gave incredible feedback and was very supportive. And uh, like just the fact, like I said, I, I applied or I entered the writing awards, you know, probably mm-hmm. partly with her encouragement. So definitely that was uh, a mentor for me. And then University that continued more so from working on the student newspaper. I think I was very fortunate there. Many of the people who worked at uh, the Gazette, which was the student newspaper at Western Ontario, uh, University of Western, where I went. So many of those people are uh, working in the the news media today or have been like, you know, the Stephen Brunts, Mm -hmm. Scott and Dave Fezchuk. And just working at a place like that, uh, the editors there were, uh, again, great mentors to to continue to hone my craft. I love hearing that because it, it can change the whole direction of your life, right? Mm-hmm. Do you have a routine or a practice as far as writing goes? 
Like, do you write every day for a certain amount of words or hours or, or something like that? Not really per se. Like, I'm not one of those disciplined writers that you hear about that has to... You know, to... Stephen King, doesn't he write like 3,000 words yeah, a day yeah. on every day except for Christmas and his birthday, <laughs> but he lies about that because he actually does do it yeah. on both those days? Yeah. No, as much as, I mean, Stephen King is... Uh, I think I own every every hardcover that he's ever put out. And oh, pretty, really? Yeah, they're all. Did lined. you read on writing his book about writing? Yeah, that one actually uh, I have on my bookshelf handy here, and I I, I reference it quite a bit. It's a great. Oh, I love that. It's, it's a, so good. It's, eh? it's a great book, and uh, yeah, I've always admired him and uh, his writing. But on your point about the the discipline and a writing routine, I've always said I'd love to get more of a routine and be that disciplined. To say, all right, I'm going to write, you know, 500,000 words or whatever it is today, or I'm going to work from, you know, five in the morning till nine in the morning before the kids go off to school. But the reality is, uh, like I, I mentioned earlier, I'm not the best planner. Structure has always been something I struggle with time management. So, 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 so how do you do it? How do you get shit done? Because I mean, you've written yeah. thousands of articles and yeah. all these papers and trade magazines and online yeah. and, and you completing books <laughs> but yet yeah well i think like i said it's uh everyone has their own routines is it uh, the last minute like staying up for days in a row or something uh, sometimes it is i mean i i will admit for my uh for the horseshoe book you know the last deadline i had i, I pulled an all-nighter to kind of finish you know some stuff off to get that final draft in to right. the publisher sure. but i i think what it comes down to now is i i've got so many projects on the go I'm writing every day regardless. And so I think the routine almost just happens itself organically because I, you know, I know I need to write today, a, you know, a thousand word feature on X musician or on any other topic that I, I'm working on, or I, I have to do edits on the book I'm working on and organically it just happens. Uh, but that's something I'm always striving to get better at to have a more you know disciplined writing routine. I do find that the one thing I do need is variety. And that's, well, I was going to ask you about that because yeah. you write for so many different kind of uh, outlets. Mm -hmm. And I was going to ask about, you know, if it's something you don't have an interest in before you start writing about it, how does that work for you? Like, mm -hmm. is it something, are you curious about everything naturally or do you have to kind of push yourself? Like, I don't know, let's say it's something you're really not interested in. How does that work? The curiosity, for sure. That's one thing I've loved about being a journalist over the years and, and I've written about so many things uh, and subjects that I never probably would have learned about before, you know, whether it's uh, as simple as like point of sale systems uh, in a bar and, you know, how they're used in, you know, in restaurants to make it easier to keep track and sell food. Or more recently, I've done some pieces for the Globe and Mail talking about different properties and architects and how, you know, these buildings impact a community and the kind of real estate side of things in the economy. So, uh, yeah, so I, that's what I do love that you, you get to, I wouldn't say you become a subject matter expert in things, but you get to learn about a lot of different subjects. I, I do consider myself a lifelong learner. And, and that's the part that fascinates me is the ability uh, as a journalist and as a writer that, you know, you can on any given day, you know, write about some topic you've never even discovered before. And, you know, sometimes you go down that rabbit hole and realize, hey, I, I really love this or, you know, I had no idea about this. And, you know, maybe it leads to, you know, you doing some more digging on your own. But just to end off with your comment about, you know, how do you get motivated when you're not interested in something? 
Mm-hmm. And that can be difficult because at the same time, over the years, I've written about a lot of dry subjects as well. Or, you know, during my years working at a couple government agencies, right? I, I, I was doing writing, but it was in a corporate setting. And, you know, some of it was very dry. Uh, you know, you're lot- harder to bring that sense of wonder. Because isn't that the thing definitely. that people say is to bring the wonder to something that seems ordinary? Mm-hmm. I'm sure it's trickier <laughs> with some things than others, right? It is for, for sure. But if you're a good writer, a good songwriter, a good storyteller, like you said, that that's the key that you can find a way. That's the challenge, I guess, for me is that. Yeah. And even if, if you're curious, if right? you're curious. And I think that's what you have to do is take a step back. And, you know, I don't love hip hop music or I don't love whatever the the subject is that I've been asked to write about. But if I just kind of think about it from, you know, someone who hasn't, doesn't know a lot about this subject and kind of, like you said, really be curious and dig right in with that kind of the childhood wonder, if you will, yeah. that, that we all had and we lost somewhere along the way, right? Where you're discovering things for the first time. And maybe by the time you're done writing about it or researching it, you do love it because mm-hmm. you find, you know, you look at it in a different way. That's what I find with this podcast, talking to people about all sorts of different things. Yeah, That's what often happens. Are you big into golf? You took over to the editorial management of Golf Canada, Golf Lifestyle Magazine, and you're president of the Golf Journalists Association of Canada, too. Yeah, well, the Golf Canada, that was a few years ago. I was So that's not not current? Not current, but I, I, I was the editor for a while, and I have uh, been a golf writer for about 20 years, yeah, so... What about a golfer? And a golfer, yeah. So last year, I actually only got out about three times, but I mean, I was lucky. I Growing up in Kitchener-Waterloo, my dad gave us as a Christmas gift, probably when I was about 12, a uh, membership to Westmount Golf and Country Club. Oh, wow. So that's where I spent, you know, my formative years and my summers, and... Uh, between fancy course, man. yeah, I know. I know. I was very lucky and didn't quite realize it at the time. But you know, between playing tennis and golfing, I, yeah, I, I developed a real passion for it. And then, no different than the music side of things, you know, to go back to you know, write. Even though over the years I've written about so many other subjects, at the end of the day, when I can, I, I figured I might as well write about uh, what I'm passionate about. So, golf and music are two things that have always. Uh, really resonated with me. And I've been very lucky and fortunate that, you know, I've been able to write about those subjects over the years. And yeah, uh, I've always found golf fascinating because I was never a player. I always kind of dismissed it as sort of an elitist thing. And I got all caught up in philosophy, right? Yeah. One of my best friends in the world, Steve Strongman, is an avid golfer. He's always been an avid golfer. He kind of got me to see it in a different light, like just the kind of focus and kind of micro attention you have to pay to small things in your body and your form Mm -hmm. to achieve this kind of incredible feat to drive this ball, tiny ball, you know, 300, whatever it is, yards into this hole. It seems ridiculous, right? But people do it. Oh, I know. It really does. But it's fascinating. It is fascinating. And I guess for me, that's, there's so many things I love about it. But one of the things uh, is that focus that it's required. As we've talked about, I've always had a bit of trouble with focus. And even though you know, I've been very athletic my whole life. I mean, I grew up, you know, playing rep hockey and going to uh, a hockey school in Colorado every summer because my dad, you know, worked there. That was her summer vacation. I played, as I said, I played basketball and, you know, other, and soccer. But golf oh, I was... I did it all. Yeah, but golf was one of those sports that it was so different, right? Because A, it was individual, unlike all the other team sports I played. But more so, like you said, is all that focus that was required and how 
how hard the game is. And it's one of those, initially, that's kind of what got me frustrated. Uh-huh. But, but I think that's part of it, that it is so challenging that you keep coming back and realize, you know, there's always so many things you can keep working on. You can never master it. It's a you life definitely, pursuit. You can never and master it. The way it's been described to me also, it has kind of uh, the quality, some of the qualities of meditation mm-hmm. in the sense that the amount of focus. Yeah, that's the thing that I love the best about it, actually. I mean, you know, even to this day, you know, I'll go out and play around. And the first question my parents ask me, oh, what did you shoot? And, <laughs> and, and more and more, I tell them, you know, I didn't keep score. To me, score is secondary. Golf, for me, really, like you you said, it's about being out in nature. I've been so lucky over the years writing about golf. I've been able to travel a lot and play courses, you know, throughout the United States. I even went to Colombia and South America to play, uh, you know, on a golf trip. Oh, wow. That's part of it. The experiences golf has led me to uh, just being out in nature and that meditative aspect that, that you referenced. Uh, some of my best times on the golf course uh, probably were playing by myself. That's when it's truly meditative and you're just out there in nature by yourself. Early in the morning, I've been lucky, you know, I've got to know a lot of the the green keepers. Sometimes, you know, I'd be out there the first golfer in the morning, you know, the dew's still on the grass, uh, you know, the birds waking up and it, there's something similar to going to a concert and feeling that magic. Like you said, uh, it's a different kind of magic and a, a peacefulness when you're out there on a, on a golf course and it's just you and nature. And I think that's one of the biggest reasons why it, it had such a huge growth in uh, and surge in popularity during the pandemic over the last year uh, and a half. <laughs> There's right? nothing else people could do. Nothing too, else right? people could do. So <laughs> a lot of, a lot of people took it up. It was, you could do it at a social distance. You could be outside. Yeah, uh, yeah. You could still see some friends. Uh, so it's a godsend. That's so what we're all it, looking for anything we yeah. can do to get some exercise and to see people got to be outside. Oh, they got to get the winter golf going. Make I know. That well, a thing. <laughs> actually, it is. I wrote an article. Is on it really? <laughs> That's again one of those examples. I wrote an article on that. You know, many years ago, there are courses that are open in the winter, and there's different rules for winter in golf. The snow. And, in the snow. I mean, I not. What for, do they use? Black balls, red yeah, balls. Yeah, they have to use yeah <laughs> colored balls, and I think. You know, obviously, they don't play the full hole. There's different tees. Uh, mm-hmm. I had no clue this existed till you know someone mentioned to me, "Hey, you want to write an article uh, and do some research on this?" And you know, lo and behold, it, there's people that are avid winter golfers and that uh, you know go out in the snow. You know, I'd rather you know go skiing or do something else in the winter. Yeah. I'm not that crazy a golfer. I'm more a fair weathered player. But <laughs> <laughs> it makes sense to yeah. me. So I wanted to ask you to kind of wrap up here. Things are probably more precarious than they've ever been for career writers like you, yet you're publishing another book. So why do you do it? Why is writing important to you? I guess it's really the only thing I know. For me, writing is something I need uh, for my own mental health. It, it's very therapeutic for me. But you're right, it, it's, it is precarious uh, in terms of a a career. It's not uh, something that's stable, especially these days as a journalist. More and more yeah. magazines, publications are, are going under, similar to yourself being a musician and venues closing. So you, you, there's not as many opportunities or places where you can get your writing out there. But it is a labor of love. That's why I'm writing another book. And I, I'm very lucky that I have a supportive wife who you know has always been there and uh, supported my my career as a writer. 
it's what I what I know, what I'm good at. And at this point, uh, you know, I don't know what else I would do. You just have to have faith. You know, it's not always about the money, but, you know, we all need it to live. But I think as long as you are passionate about something and you believe in your, you just got to have faith and keep writing, really, uh, you know, write on and uh, things will uh, kind of fall into place. At least that's what I've found more and more. And that's something this pandemic has shown us that the cliche I live by is one day at a time, because uh, especially now we don't know what tomorrow is going to bring. And so I might as well uh, spend my time writing and doing something I'm passionate about, you know, I spent enough years, uh, you know, in corporate jobs where I was unhappy and, you know, it took its toll on my mental health. So in that case, uh, you know, I, I'm in a good place right now. And like I said, I, I don't know what else I'd do if I wasn't a writer. I can relate. It's you're just driven to do it. It's a compulsion. I love the the connection you make to mental health, too. I've tried to explain that to people who who maybe haven't had the experience of the kind of nourishment you get from a creative pursuit mm -hmm. and i just i just wonder like i marvel that they can get through life without something to pour their energy in like i've heard it described a lot of ways as just a a way to combat anxiety mm -hmm. i don't know what i would do without that i just watched this movie about this guy his every waking moment He's playing with cards. Mm. And so to me, it was such a perfect expression of, to me, how it feels to be creative. He says, basically, I don't know what else to do with my nervous energy. Yeah. So I basically focus everything on the cards. Mm -hmm. So to me, it's like everybody needs some conduit like that, it feels like to me, whether it's cards, whether it's music, whether it's writing. So I feel pretty lucky to have found it. It sounds like, <laughs> sounds like you do too. Yeah. I, I do. I feel blessed and grateful. I, I, I'm in a good place now that, you know, I, I've worked hard, I guess, and, and like many ways to get to this point in my career. But, you know, I, I'm happy that I can get up every day and stare at that blank page and, and see what's going to come and, you know, be creative. And uh, yeah, get over the fear of the blank page, yeah, right? Yeah. You got to face it. And yeah, there's still, you know, nothing like it. Seeing, you know, that byline in print or, you know, when that box of uh, books arrives and you open up and see it, you know, that cover for the first time. I mean, there's no feeling like it. So, uh, you know, <laughs> I don't know what else there is to say. That's a good life. That's yeah. a good way to spend yeah. your time while you're alive. And I'm saying that for all of us. Yeah. If you, we're talking about the creative pursuits that whatever we're compelled to do. Thanks for the work you do, David. Nope. I, I really love the horseshoe book. I, it, it really did send me down a bunch of different rabbit holes. It's It was great. I just lost myself in it. No, thanks. No, I was uh, I was lucky in writing it. Uh, you know, I had a lot of people that believed in me. I mean, it was my first book. You know, the publisher, Dundurn, uh, was behind me. Jeff Cohen and Craig Lasky and all the people at the horseshoe. Um, once I explained what I wanted to do, they were behind me. And the same things now happened with my next book, uh, I'm Massey Hall, that uh, will come out uh, next fall. I mean, I'm very lucky that, you know, from the president on down, the people I've dealt with there, they've all been incredibly supportive uh, of this project. And uh, I just feel honored and humbled that I'm able to tell these stories. Fantastic. Well, thanks for taking the time and thanks for telling me about your life and what you're passionate about. No, thanks for the interest, Rob. It was a pleasure. I really enjoyed it. You've got a really cool podcast. David McPherson. Wow, that brought me back. The Horseshoe Tavern, early 90s. That was such a big part of my musical tutelage is that the right word? Musical education, playing on that stage. What a great sounding stage. Probably my favorite sounding stage 
in Canada that I've ever played on. There's just something about it. Low ceiling, carpeted stage. The ceiling may even be carpeted. There's something about it that just sounds fantastic. It makes me think of one of the first times I walked into that room and I'm early 20s. I've heard about this legendary venue for years, never played it. This was one of the first times in my band, the Groove Daddies at the time, played this venue. And I remember walking in to the venue late afternoon. The band that we were opening for was sound checking, and it happened to be, it was like a put-together band. It was, I think they were called Shut Up and Dance. It was some of the guys from the Bare Naked Ladies and Gordy Johnson from Big Sugar. And this was a band that they put together for a few shows. They might have done a short tour anyway. They were playing So What You Want by the Beastie Boys. And this is like Gordy Johnson, and I think it was Tyler, I I don't know, what's his last name, from the Bare Naked Ladies, the drummer. And he was on the mic going through an amplifier, all distorted, singing So What You Want. And I was just, you know, this is the horseshoe, and these are like semi-famous Toronto musicians just jamming out (laughs) Beastie Boys cover. That was great. I was just, you know, wide-eyed, early 20s. What's this all about, man? What's going to happen tonight? Is anybody going to be here? What are these guys going to do? i got to put a link in, too. I've been putting more links than I usually do at the end in the show notes for those of you who are hardcore and really want to dig more into these stories and these conversations. And this is a link to a YouTube documentary about Stomp and Tom, and it's some... I think it's 70s footage of Stomp and Tom at the Horseshoe Tavern when he's doing one of his longer stints. And it's wild if you have any interest in the Horseshoe and you've been there, you know, in in modern times. It's just such a little time capsule of a different era. It's worth it. So go down to the show notes, the episode notes, if you scroll down from the episode from whatever app you're listening in. So again, thank you all of you who come back week after week. Thanks also, of course, to those of you who sponsor the show, who are patrons of the show on coffee, who send me money to keep the things rolling. New subscribers every week, actually. So welcome to those of you who are new. I really appreciate it. I, uh, I wouldn't be able to do this without you. So thanks again. Thanks for listening. Thanks for your ears. Thanks for standing by me when I have to get creative. Again, I'm still in my car. Thanks for yours. I hope you're doing well out there in whatever way you're having to be creative in your life. Thanks for giving a shit. Oh, here here comes the streetcar. You hear that? Sometimes Why is brought to you by Rob Zabo. Conversations are edited by Todd Donald. 